0: Good morning and welcome back. My name's Jenna Ash and I'm the editor of Education Technology. With me today are three leading experts from the edtech world. And over the next 40 minutes, we're going to be discussing the digital divide, why it matters, and how to fix it. So I'll just introduce you all quickly before Jenna, we get stuck um, in. Okay. So with me today, we've got Ruth Drysdale, a Senior Consultant of Data and Digital Capability for JISC. morning, Ruth. And we also have Nathan Snyder, uh, Manager of Policy and Outreach for the Information and Communications Technology Council, or the ICTC in Canada. Super early for you, Nathan. I hope you've had time for your morning coffee.
1: Yeah, it's right here.
0: (laughs) And last but not least, we have Abdul Chohan, Director of Think Simple Limited and co-founder of the Olive Tree School in Bolton. So thank you all so much for joining us. I'm so pleased to have you here. Um, It's been almost two decades since Ben Compain of Northeastern University wrote that before there was the digital divide, there were the digital haves and have-nots, demonstrating that the relationship between ICT and inequality is unfortunately nothing new. Today the issue is far more prevalent than we ever could have imagined, and while the pandemic has demonstrated the value of technology, it's also presented a series of challenges the sector can't afford to ignore, and the digital divide is one. So Abdul, let's start with you. Many across the education sector fear that Covid nineteen is increasing digital inequality. But what sort of issues are students contending with when trying to access access remote learning materials from home?
2: Oh, I think I think that you know it's it's opened up something that has been there for a long, long time in education. Um, and I think it's you had school leaders scrambling, looking at solutions and trying to make things work uh, where potentially they don't have the tools or even the expertise. To, to make that happen. Um, and 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 they've done a fantastic job in trying to trying to kind of make learning accessible. Um, but for me, it's been kind of um for a lot of for a lot of um, children, they've experienced a translated approach. So we had worksheets in schools and we had documents in schools and now that's just been sent home and you know the students have been left to their own devices to kind of complete this, send this back that face-to-face teaching the ability to use voice and explain concepts or have that kind of support um although we have the technology to make that happen uh, many schools and many students just haven't had the opportunity to kind of do that and i think that we've just kind of moved to this whole, oh, let's just go straight into video conferencing because it kind of looks like we're going to be face to face and so on um, but i don't think it's provided the same degree or level of support that we we might have expected um so i think that there's been frustration there's been frustration for parents as well for parents kind of feeling my children are uh, are losing out on learning and how do i support them and i can do long division but that's not the way we did it at school and all that (laughs) kind of stuff um has been coming out but you know the frustration for me is we live in a world where technology exists that allows us to plug those gaps quite simply Um, And there are many tools that allow us to do that. Um, And I just think in the UK, we've just not been prepared for that. Um, And I don't think we've had a vision for that in terms of education. Um, And I think it's time for that to change.
3: Thank you. Ruth, anything to add to that one? Yes, I think um, picking up on that last point, um, it's we've all had to cope with a very, very quick emergency flip from um, moving off of campus to remote learning. And uh, so everybody had to really depend on what kind of digital foundations they'd been laying over the last five, 10, 20 years really since the start of the internet. So um, it it has been really um, based on how people have succeeded is based on what they had in place and what connections and networks they had in place beforehand. Um, But in terms of what staff and students both needed, were three basic kind of resources. So they needed a suitable device, some suitable space, which is um, kind of assumed that that might be available, but then also access to reasonable Wi-Fi connection. So if they had those three basic things, and then also the tools on those devices, Um, But more importantly, um, I think several of your presenters have already mentioned this morning, it's about the digital skills and capabilities for both staff and students. And if you had all of that in place, then some institutions have really found the flip very seamless. Um, And that that has included all sorts of students and staff within their organisation. So I think that demonstrates it is possible but you had to have had those foundations in place. Lots of um, organizations and and, uh, institutions have been helping their staff and students acquire those basics if they didn't have them, but I think it has really been um, challenging. And I think whilst um, a lot of young people seem to have phones, it's an assumption that they all had them, mobile phones maybe aren't really suitable devices to do um extensive learning so they might um connect you with the information fairly quickly um but that that has been a challenge if you don't have a suitable device and i think wi-fi if you've got a lot more people on at home downloading big files or streaming video can really put a pressure on that and so um And a lot of households, especially in smaller accommodation, don't have desks and chairs and quiet spaces. And that's as true for staff as it is for students. So um, the important bit is to have had the foundations. And I think that's going to be really important going forward in order to sort of address the issues. Thank you,
0: Ruth. Nathan, how about uh, a bit of a Canadian perspective on this one?
3: Yeah,
1: so what I'd like to do instead is actually kind of uh, take the initial point, the initial question, uh, the comment specifically about the haves, the digital haves and and have nots. I don't think that's actually changed. I think that a lot of what we're discussing now are the nuances uh, and the kind of band-aid solutions and how to address the digital divide uh, in a very reactive instead of proactive way. I think the reality of the situation is that uh, all of these questions about educational technologies come down to social inequity. And I think that uh, whether it be the Canadian landscape or the UK landscape, I think we're always finding ourselves in a situation where uh, we're addressing the symptoms uh, instead of the actual root uh, or cause. And I think what we end up doing here is we have these conversations where we're sort of pontificating about, well, in what ways can we be responding with certain types of technologies in certain areas to fix certain problems? And I think the reality is it really comes down to well, we need a better understanding of what the social issues are in order for us to say, okay, let's address equity first, and then the digital divide will hopefully uh, be addressed shortly after. So I don't think it's really a Canadian versus UK uh, perspective. I think so much as this is a bit of a social systemic problem that has, unfortunately, a variety of causes that sort of trickle over. And we as educational uh, technology experts or uh, thought leaders end up in a situation where once again we're trying to address the symptoms.
0: Mm, Interesting. Thank you, Nathan. So, Ruth, what exactly happens if the sector fails to address these issues?
3: Well, I think necessity is the mother of invention. And um, everybody has to really pull together to ensure that we do close this divide, as um, Nathan just said. It was there before and um, we've got to do more to um, address it. So I think the way that um, we've been doing that within JISC is to collaborate with other universities and colleges, government agents, and other sector agencies in order for us to really help understand what the opportunities and challenges that technology afford in teaching and learning. And uh, we've been doing this over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and, And we've just got to really sort of continue doing that and make sure that we um, address the core issues. So we talked about um, the infrastructure. So we have been looking to see what are the challenges um, that the current situation faced, because we've been focusing on setting that all up in campuses rather than in um, remote locations. And other colleagues within JISC, where I work, have been working on the um, infrastructure side Whereas uh, I work in an area where we've been looking at the actual digital capabilities for both staff and students, so that they have got the skills to be able to um, embrace technology. Mm -hmm. And we've been um, working with the sector on digital literacies and capabilities for the last 10 years, so that we've got the evidence of um, what is beginning to work well and what could be adopted wider so that um, everybody has these skills and capabilities and we've got lots of resources on our website that um, are freely available for anybody in the world um, to download, so please do look there and get in contact um, if there's anything that you think that we could be doing to support you better.
0: Thank you Ruth. Now statistics from UK charities show that since the start of the lockdown, 1.9 million households have not had access to the internet. And tens of millions have been relying on pay-as-you-go services to make phone calls, access healthcare, access education and benefits online. Now this means that some families are literally having to choose between buying food for their families or buying data for the, so that their children don't fall behind in their education. And yep. even when some of the nation's major internet providers agreed to move data caps on fixed-line broadband, the move was obviously of absolutely no benefit to those without internet or those relying on pay-as-you-go. And now this is by no means uh, an issue that's exclusive to the UK. So Nathan, how is it the situation playing out amid COVID-19 and is the yeah. situation similar to over here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just start by saying that's a wonderful question because I think uh, it's not discussed enough. Um, For those that don't really know or aren't super familiar with uh, the Canadian telecom landscape, but we have three essentially large telecom companies, uh, this is my personal opinion. This isn't reflected by the institution I work for, but uh, there's a bit of a monopoly that exists in Canada in terms of telecoms. And uh, some some of the big three players have done a really good job Um, staying in positive public opinion uh, by responding in really interesting, uh, dare I say, almost philanthropic ways, Uh, one of them being uh, Rogers. So there's a large telecom company here that actually uh, worked out an arrangement with one of the provincial uh, ministries uh, to offer um, iPads essentially to an entire school district uh, that are connected via their system directly to Wi-Fi um, using uh, mobile hotspots. And it's a great idea. And I think it, it did a great job uh, providing access uh, to not only technology, but broadband connectivity for those that are under uh, underserved groups. But we have such a large landscape in Canada that uh, there's a lot of rural communities that are dealing with this issue of transitioning to uh, remote working or work from home environment, specifically students, uh, where their parents are just trying to address the fact that, OK, well, now I'm working from home and now my students are also working from home. But we have uh, very poor rural broadband connectivity. How do we how do we kind of respond to this situation? And what we ended up seeing uh, I was just reading a news article a couple days ago, but um, the telecom companies refused to actually remove the bandwidth caps uh, on some of these uh, rural areas, and it was exclusively cited that uh, it would put too much of a drain or heavy draw on their uh, their infrastructure, which. I, I mean, I, I don't agree with, and is probably very easily uh, addressed as being uh, sort of a myth. But the reality of the situation is that it, it, it's those that live in rural communities uh, that, right now, at least in Canada, are probably feeling the biggest pinch, um, whether it be just lack of access, lack of speed, uh, and therefore uh, kind of negative implications on their uh, on their ability to continue to learn. So it's super unfortunate. But yeah, absolutely, it's a, an instance that impacts uh, Canada.
0: Thank you, Nathan. On April 19th, Education Secretary Gavin Williamson announced a scheme pledging free devices for disadvantaged students in the UK, and secondary schools were actually set to reopen on June 15th, but as of the 5th to 6th of June, only 54% of secondary leaders said they were yet to receive a single device, and 70% hadn't received the routers they'd been promised. That's according to data from the National Association of Head Teachers. Nathan, I'll be back over to you in a second. But first, okay. Abdul, what's going on here? The government failed to fulfil their promise, failing some of the most disadvantaged students in the UK. So, so where do we go from here, and what do government and educational institutions need to do to ensure students aren't further mar- marginalised?
2: Great question, Jenna. Um, you know. As far as um, technology and education is concerned in the UK, I think the government has been very good at doing the wrong things really well. (laughs) Um, And they just continue to do that again and again. Um, For me, you know, it's about that equitable access. Step one would be very simple. It's not about advantage and disadvantage. We're living in 2020, 2020. We have technology that does things that we simply thought was not possible even five years ago. Every student in every in every single school should have access to technology. And there are countries that have started to move in that direction. Just a few weeks ago, um, Singapore announced that every secondary school student by 2021 will have their own device. Now, what that device is, what it's going to be every school can every school can can decide on that you know they can make their kind of technology plan their digital strategy and so on but what the government should be promising is Mm -hmm. that we're going to give 300 pounds 350 pounds per student across the whole country um, and that's that that should give them access to technology they should be able to buy the school should be able to buy technology as part of a plan um, that collective approach should kind of bring prices down even more. Um, th- they can build their digital strategy on top of that. The focus would then be how do we develop learning? How do, these, how do the tools that come with technology add value to what teachers do? Um, my background is a chemistry teacher. I would stand on a Monday morning in front of a year eight class um, and I would be explaining the atomic structure. If you wanted to learn atomic structure from me, you would have to be in that room, on a Monday morning at that time, 100% fully focused, listening to me, and be able to retain 100% of what I've just said, what I've explained, and understanding. We now have technology that can capture that. Students can watch that as many times as they want. They can that can be accessed by parents. Parents can support their children's learning with that um you know six months i can go back and and listen to that again uh, and it will help me with my learning maybe there was a word there that i didn't understand i can look up i can translate Um, equitable access um and kind of developing a digital strategy that's something that the government can enable by firstly and literally step one saying that in 2021 every student in every school will have access to a computer and you know what that's that has been put together glasgow city council fifty-six thousand devices are going to be rolled out over so many years there's a education plan in place you're looking at access you know i've worked in so many municipalities in sweden and the whole idea of one-to-one is pretty normal. Every student has access to a computer. They come in, they go home. Yes, there are skills that we have to learn. There's do's, there's don'ts. There's you know, um, kind of um, learning curves that need to happen in education. But I think for me, that's really the first serious commitment the government has to do and has to kind of put forward and say, right, this is step one. It's not the answer to everything but it's certainly a commitment um, and it takes off that pressure from schools and school leaders to think budgets and money and how is this going to work and so on. Schools spend so much on computer rooms that are still shared by classes. Laptop trolleys that don't work that cause frustration. Um, you know, Learning management systems that are not always fit for purpose and you know, um, they, they're not made for a hybrid remote learning kind of approach and so on. Um, so I think for me, that's the first step. I don't think it should be about advantage and disadvantage. I think the government should just commit to every student getting um, access to a computer and allowing the, the school leaders to make that decision to say, what device are we going to use? How are we going to use it? You know, what, what are the do's and don'ts and and, and so on.
0: Thank you, Abdul. And Nathan, are you you seeing the similar sorts of government initiatives springing up in Canada? And if you have, I hope that they've been more successful than here in the UK.
1: So I think your previous speaker actually did an excellent job. So at one point Priya mentioned that we're sort of experiencing right now uh, a bit of an experiment that's taking place just given the sort of rapid overnight transition to these uh, remote working environments, remote learning environments. Um, I want to start by saying that um, I hope there's policymakers on the call, both from the UK as well as uh, in Canada. But um, my hat actually goes off to the way uh, the uh, school administrations here, at least in Canada on a district level, ended up transitioning because it must have been a very challenging position. I don't think they get away completely scot-free because I think the reality of the situation is that there should have been more effort and focus placed on the idea of um, these remote learning environments a lot sooner. Uh, I don't think it needed to take a pandemic for us to see the value uh, of these systems and uh, how we can effectively transition over to them uh, in the case uh, that there was an emergency or something changed within a specific province or territory. Um, so. Yeah, as a baseline, uh, I think school administrations, at least here in Canada, did a good job uh, on a very like, regional levels and in specific instances transitioning. I think, again, this kind of goes back to the initial question. I think there's a lot of systemic issues that uh, this transition had to um, experience, had to deal with, had to juggle in order to see any semblance of uh, uh, any semblance of success. And I think that what we're doing now is we're we're learning from this experience. And I think what we're doing um, whether or not we're policymakers, school administrators, even educators, uh, I think we're learning right now the ways in which we could pro- pro- properly take a step forward in the future. Um, And I think that, if anything, this entire experience, this pandemic has taught us what it is that needs to be the baseline um, that we just mentioned a minute ago. I I think that having technology, obviously, access to -to one-to-one, we also have a BYOD environment here in Canada, which is bring your own device, uh, and certain school districts that don't have the budget necessarily to invest in technology en masse. Um, so, the slight, potentially slight difference here is that every school district has a lot of autonomy over uh, their own budget and even the decision associated to whether or not to buy technology, how that's done, what the um, what the purchasing arrangement looks like, uh, and what the value looks like. And they require a lot of input from their educators on the school level to say, okay, well, I think this is going to be effective because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And uh, they don't necessarily have uh, autonomy over the budget that they're given by the provincial ministry. Although I'm assuming they'd probably love that, um, that's the, unfortunately just not the reality that they live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to say that this is necessarily going to come back to the school as being an exclusive school issue. I, again, I, I, can't, I have to dig my heels on this being a systemic social issue.
0: Thank you, Nathan. Uh, over to you now, Ruth. The situation of the lockdown is so unique because ever since it was announced in March, public spaces have been closed. According to the Oxford Internet Survey, nearly 70% of UK citizens use public Wi-Fi and 20% go to the library to access the internet. So how far do you think the closures really have exacerbated the digital haves and have nots in terms of those public spaces and access to them?
3: Well, I think as we've all acknowledged, there was a divide before, Um, so whilst... We uh, assume sometimes by sort of just seeing so many people walk- walking around with devices, and you can um, log on to all sorts of different free networks fairly seamlessly now that, that Wi Fi has become the sort of new utility, and expectation is that it's there and that um, it will all work. So, this has sort of caught us all out by surprise, really, I think, in terms of, like I mentioned earlier. We've been working on developing campuses um, and getting the infrastructure right within those buildings. And sometimes that was challenging if they were uh, very old and it it was difficult to do the connection. But that's where our focus was. At the moment now, um, my colleagues in the infrastructure area of JISC have been working on um, other solutions about how to enable the Wi-Fi that's available in the um, institutions, available in the wider environment. And so we've got initiatives like um, digital cities and smart cities. So Bristol, uh, which is my hometown, is um, a leading um, innovative city trialing out how to enable Wi-Fi across the whole um, area. And hopefully, um, when these initiatives have been um, rolled out and fully implemented, it will reduce the amount of um, situations that we're in now where you you rely on um, Wi-Fi in a certain location and you can access it um, more easily uh, from other places. I'm sure we've got it cracked in some areas because I don't think people could um, go to somewhere like Glastonbury for four days if they didn't have reliable Wi-Fi. So um, I think that demonstrates that we can do it. And um, as Abdullah and Nathan have mentioned, we've just got to make sure that the people, the decision makers with the funding have the willingness um, to do it. And
0: mm-hmm. uh, our last year broadband for all became somewhat of a mantra in the UK parliamentary election. And yet here we are lacking connectivity when people need it most. And again, it's the most vulnerable and disadvantaged households that are the hardest hit. Um, again, another unfulfilled pledge for something that's by no means impossible. After the nation declared a state of emergency, China's National Tech Alliance, for example, provided 7,000 servers which reached 50 million students. And I spoke to Priya Lakhani earlier about a project led by, um, led by Century Tech and the Lebanese Ministry of Education assisted by the UK government in which they funded the implementation of Microsoft Teams and Century's AI platform for a quarter of a million students who are learning remotely, as well as a quarter of a million Syrian refugees, and families didn't have to pay for the bandwidth to use these services. And there are cases like these all over the world, and we've, you know, mentioned some. So Abdul, why again is the UK government failing our students, and what is the main priority, do you think, for the next steps?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it comes back to the, 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 the things that I said uh, earlier on. Um, It's okay doing a project in one place and another place, but to kind of make a commitment um, to um, to nationally, um, and that's going to have the longevity that you would expect in education, the impact that it's going to have. You need to have some very serious kind of, um, you know. You need to have a serious vision around what it is that you want for education in a country. Um, You know, you can take countries like Korea, which 10 years ago did not have access, did not have um, the approaches that they have today, but there's been serious investment in education, connectivity and so on is just part of it. Um, I think it's understanding that the world that we live in now, um, the hardware and the connectivity is kind of, you know, it's... It's access, it's equity. Um, a school that has um, access to devices and is connected uh, to Wi-Fi, and all students have access to that, cannot does not um, have the same level of opportunity as a school that doesn't have access to technology at all and is not connected to the internet. It's just not the same anymore. Um, the ability for a student to look something up and find something out independently. The ability um, for a... For a leadership team to bring in operational efficiencies in terms of how the school is run um, in a technology enabled environment with connectivity is far more able um, than a school that is still having to photocopy and print and give out documents and collect them back in and so on the workload for teachers in a school that doesn't have access to technology um is going to be um, significantly more. I We've just done a, an impact study um, with a number of schools in the UAE, in Australia, um, in some in Sweden as well, a couple in the UK as well, where we just introduced one thing using technology, and that was verbal feedback. So children can write and they can comment and then they do their work in books or whether it's a video or whether it's an image but how they submit that to their teachers and the fact that their teachers can overlay voice and just give feedback rather than traditional marking and the intonations and that human communication and, and those same schools now in this lockdown kind of environment they've just been able to simply translate those teachers are still speaking to their students they're having conversations like they were in the classroom and so on and there's that's that's technology at its best because it's technology adding value to what humans do really well. You know, it's not about replacing uh, teachers. It's about adding value to what teachers can do. And I think, I think that the UK government needs to have a serious commitment, not a project, not just looking at one cohort, not just looking at the disadvantage. They need to overall look at education and say, look, access to a device and access to connectivity is the foundation uh, for everything else to happen as far as technology is concerned and there needs to be a comment or a statement that comes out from um, you know the, the Ministry of Education that would just say something like by the end of 2021 all students will have access to technology and that includes the whole connectivity yeah. Wi-Fi and there needs to be a plan something that we're working towards. Because at the moment, it's really kind of, I'm not even sure that there's a, a vision around this or real <laughs> understanding as to what the possibilities are uh, and what can be done. Yeah.
0: Nathan, do you think the government... I know you said it's, it's slightly different there because um, well. the, the regions have more autonomy, but do you think that they're prioritising the right things?
1: So... Um, I just want to start sort of just by dismantling a lot of this conversation so far has been about broadband connectivity and broadband access. And we were, uh, Abdul was just talking about addressing again the symptoms instead of the illness. Because I think that's unfortunately the the reality of the situation we're currently faced with. But um, instead of addressing that question, I just kind of want to take a step back and just state that when we're talking about the digital divide in general, uh, I think it's really best summarized by those that are policymakers tend to be in a situation where they don't understand the experiences of those uh, that are in the less fortunate situations. So I'm going to read to you guys actually something that I found specifically for this panel that I thought did a really good job encapsulating sort of the mentality of those that are making decisions on behalf of the lowest uh, or the, the most underserved groups. Uh, and the quote is: "If a parent ever asks how how they can help a child succeed in the school, please, and this is coming from an educator." Uh, Please start by letting them know that proper sleep, proper nutrition, and limited technology use are the core fundamentals for student success. And without even realizing it necessarily right right off the top, but there's so much privilege associated with even just saying that those are the top three primary items that should be addressed quite simply uh, in order for students to succeed. Uh, whether it be throughout the pandemic or even prior to. We're talking about broadband connectivity, but I think the digital divide, again, uh, really starts with the idea that if one of the first uh, systemic issues that you're discussing or run into is a lack of proper sleep, well, lack of proper sleep probably equates from a variety of different social or economic challenges that a family's going through. Second, proper nutrition follows that shortly thereafter. Uh, and limited technology use has the assumption that they even have technology to use at home, which is what Abdul was just mentioning prior uh, a minute ago. So I think that when we're talking about the digital divide in general, before we even get to the conversation of uh, broadband connectivity, we have to understand that there's an experience here that we, as privileged individuals on this call right now, connecting to this conversation, we don't experience the same way, we don't encounter the same way, we don't even necessarily witness uh, but th- this is, this is the challenge that we need to address before we get to the conversation of broadband connectivity. So I think that we, we probably should sort of construct a little bit of a framework, even for this call about what the digital divide truly means. Uh, and again, I, I'd like to think that this is not a different social issue in Canada as it is for the UK. I think that they're probably very synonymous.
0: Thank you, Nathan. Sadly, yes. that's actually just about all we've got time for today. And all of us here at Ed Quarter would like to thank our expert panel, Abdul Chohan from Think Simple Limited, Ruth Drysdale of JISC, and Nathan Snyder of Canada's IC, IT, ICTC. That's a mouthful there, <laughs> Nathan. Uh, it it's is. been a real pleasure speaking to you guys today. And I really hope we can connect again soon. And thanks, guys.